Welcome to the Rookie Scale Podcast. I'm your host, John Chepkevich, and joining me today is pro football-focused lead draft analyst, Mike Renner. What's going on, Mike? Hey, John. Good to see you, buddy. Been a while, man. I know. It's been too long. It's been too long. I mean, I, it's been years, man. I mean, obviously, I've been keeping in touch with you, following your work at PFF and everything, but miss the days back when we were uh, hooping in men's league together here I know, in Chicago man. and back at Rolf's at Notre Dame. It's been way too long. Uh, dude, you still ball? You still getting out there? Not, you know, not in the past 13 months or so, but uh, I got my second dose today. got my microchip upgrade today, so should be in the clear here starting in May. So excited to get back on the court, but I don't know about you, but for me, like I've been trying to keep in shape, but I've been doing weird stuff that I would never do otherwise, like riding the Peloton and things like that, which I think like, I think my vert is going to be just shot when I get back (laughs) on the court. It's going to be pretty, pretty embarrassing. What about you? That's what I was worried about. So they've had leagues starting like this whole year they've been going on. So I've been playing again and it's been, it's been coming back a little. Uh, I, I played one of the worst games of my life, though, in the semifinals of our rec league. I, I started off 0 for 10. It was it was a play. I just kept firing it up there, though. We hey, shoot up, or shoot, man. I know. <laughs> Came alive in the second half. It was a little too too little too late. And yeah, that'll happen. You still so you still have the freaky bounce, though. I remember, you know, if I recall, you were used to be able to do some kind of. Uh, unexpected, crazy two foot stuff uh, with yeah, I can't some tomahawk I can't action in there. I would say I can't windmill anymore, but I can still get up there and I can still two hand pretty easily. So maybe, uh, maybe the windmill will come back here soon. I'm, I'm hoping I'm getting a little up there though. 30. Maybe, maybe that can be the goal for 2022 NBA draft combine time to get, get the windmill back just one more time. Yeah. That, I mean, I'm praying, man, I'm, I'm working at it. I've been, I've been doing some explosive lifts and whatnot. We'll see. There we go. I'll have to hit you up after this to get get the details for that. I might have to get on your program. Oh, dude, it's no program, just freestyle, just whatever, <laughs> whatever I could do. A lot of a lot of hand cleans. I like it, man. I like it. Well, hey, uh, you know, I appreciate you taking the time to hop on the podcast here. Obviously, love the work that you're doing at the Two for One Draft Pod and everything you're doing there at Pro Football Focus. I enjoy listening in, and you know, as an NBA draft analyst and someone who scouts a lot of prospects from a basketball perspective and trying to identify what makes them translate to the next level in basketball. I think there's some interesting lessons to be gleaned from kind of your process in football and what you guys do there at pro football focus. And, you know, there are obviously some differences between the games that, you know, make it a little bit uh, different of a process on each side of the fence here. Uh, But I think there's definitely some stuff that maybe, uh, crosses over to both sports. So wanted to just pick your brain a little bit on kind of your process from beginning to end and scouting and evaluating talent, forming your board and just some like high level philosophies for, for the draft. I think the biggest thing that we're trying to do at PFF or like the biggest thing, like taken away from years of doing this is just trying to eliminate outliers trying to try you're never yeah. gonna you're never gonna hit 100 you know you know you're, they're never gonna bat a thousand in this business the guy, they're when you're dealing with individuals people are too erratic like people right there there are people fail for reasons that have nothing to do with how you evaluated their talent like talent is not the only thing that matters you can perfectly identify the talent of all these guys and still like i said not even back close to even 75 percent in this 
but it's more identifying what parts of someone's profile uh, are more likely to fail at the next level. And we're doing things like right. identifying, you know, one-year wonders. What what positions does one-year wonder should you be scared of? What positions does it really not matter if they're a one-year wonder? Um, things like athletic profiling. Um, basically, where where an athletic profile do you not want a guy to basically not t- not test well? You know, is it yeah. what, what what part of the athletic testing? Because there's all these things. What part actually matters to a football field? And then or more what part matters in a negative way that you don't want to touch. And and then basically the on-field grading that we have here at PFF, what parts of those um, are more predictive, what parts are more unstable, and what, uh, what really is, again, the thing that matters, finding out what actually matters on the football field to then translate to the NFL. And so it's obviously in football is crazy because the positions are so different. Like right. basketball is kind of like – it all mixes more up. fluid. Exactly. Like it all kind of mixes up like th- at certain points in the game, but in the NFL yeah. defensive end, his job is not even close to what a receiver's job. So right. like the fact that they're athletic, you know, you get the same measurables, you get the same like grades. It's like they're the same aspects of them are not going to be the same to what translates to success. So it's kind of like right. a bunch of individualistic uh, moving parts here that I'm trying to balance and juggle and then do things like positional value on top of that. So it's, Right. It's a lot, but uh, we're trying to just basically just better the process is all you can do. You can, again, you can't perfect any of this stuff. Right. Yeah. It's important to take that holistic view, but like you said, there's stuff that you just can't predict even with the best data in the world, like the, the off field or out off court stuff. I mean, I'm sure over the years, have you, as you've gotten more plugged in, you've been uh able to get more intel that can help kind of paint that picture Mm -hmm. and give you a better sense of that sort of thing but there's always there's always stuff that you're never going to know and be able to project forward into someone's career but like you said just uh you know taking that macro approach and having as much good information as possible and then weighing sort of positional value type things which i think is one of the most interesting things you guys are doing kind of helps you be right more often than not or versus consensus. That's really all we're trying to do is just, I mean, that's like analytics in general is to what's the small edge you can get, where can you just be right a little bit more or get value a little bit more than someone else do that over the long run. And you're going to have better results over the long run. And it's very similar to kind of, uh, I saw Eric Tacosta, I think it's his name, the Ravens GM talking about how they've always just said, we want more picks in every single round. We don't know who exactly are going to be the best players. So we want more chances at finding who exactly are going to be the best players. And I think you've seen, obviously, from the Ravens results, having never really had anywhere of of the, you know, the Brady's, the Mannings, any of those upper echelon quarterbacks, and they still won over the past two, two decades. So I do think process and finding those small edges is all we're really looking for here at PFF and trying to do. Yeah, exactly. Like winning on the margins over and over again and just having that minor competitive advantage over your competition in the long run, just kind of it eventually adds up and just making smart decisions, you know, is if you do that consistently, you know, you have a better shot at, you know, team success down the line. But I I think what you brought up there with the Ravens is an interesting point. Uh, I think you and Austin might have gone into this before as far as the Ravens 
consistently trying to take advantage of the compensatory picks and trying to rack those up. And like you said, get as many sort of bites at the apple as possible. Uh, is that the compensatory pick thing? Is that sort of like a market inefficiency that like a few of the smarter teams have been kind of reaping the benefits of the past few years, like consistently, is that something that you see teams becoming a little bit more savvy with like as time has gone on, like if for as long as you've been at PFF, is that, the the trends there have they been altering as teams have gotten smarter what's what's sort of the deal there there are still teams that ignore it and, and it blows my yeah. mind every single year like the lions going out and signing a running back to nicks a compensatory pick this past year right it's just like i i it matters like the more you can build up again the more chances you have and it, just being able to being cognizant of it is like you said, such a market inefficiency, even still from what we've seen that uh, teams just don't take advantage of too many teams are so afraid of, you know, yeah, it's being, the risk aversion, right? Yeah. Like, so many teams are so afraid of being like bad at a certain position where it's just like, yeah, ah, you got to trust you got, if you're bad at a certain position, well then get find, find the talent in the draft. You know, it, it really, right. uh, it really keeps coming back to that, that, teams just don't factor in something that's like can provide value for you. Yeah. There's just like a lot of surplus value to be realized and opportunity costs that people aren't really weighing correctly, whether it's in the NFL or the NBA, like what comes to mind for me as sort of an equivalent or parallel to that in the NBA is sometimes you'll have some underclassmen that are testing the draft waters in a given year and kind of the consensus boards and mocks and everything might have a certain younger player that maybe had a lower minute threshold, but showed some pretty strong indicators of, you know, that they may be an NBA player down the line. Those guys are getting ranked a little bit lower maybe than they should be. And, you know, then when the the next year's mock draft comes out or a preview of the next year's mock draft is there before that player even plays another game, the subsequent season, they're already being mocked in like the lottery or in the first round or something. Right. So like if you're confident enough in, a projection looking forward like that based on their tape and their analytics from this past year to project them as being that caliber the subsequent year, why not, you know, try to go out of your way to grab them in the current year's draft and get them on like a team friendly contract and get them into your system a year earlier and kind of take advantage of that market inefficiency. Right. Like I think there's, there's something, you know, if you're able to avoid that risk, that risk aversion that a lot of teams have to wanting a higher sample size and like believing in your scouting and your projections. I think there's, you know, something to be gleaned from that. Yeah. I mean, the older guys are always going to look better. That's just how it goes. Right. And I think recognizing age and developmental curves and how that works. And the fact that the amount of guys that get worse in college is so far fewer than the amount of guys who continue to improve. And so you're going to, I think, getting those younger guys in the NFL when you're not necessarily, when you're in a franchise that, you know, maybe not necessarily first round when that guy's expected to come in right away, but especially third, fourth round, I just, I think that's when I'd start taking chances on 21, 20 year olds, the guys that came out early, but maybe, right. maybe not it's like they'll say they shouldn't have could have been higher picks. If they came back to school, those sort of guys. That's what I'm going to take them because, uh, like I said the amount of times we see guys blow up as seniors after lackluster junior years, there's a lot of that. All of a sudden, that guys who would have blown up as seniors now in your on your team that would have gone a lot higher. So I, I do think recognizing that is also 
a big part of just like how learning curves work is a big part of scouting as well. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, there's, there's some kind of major differences from as far as the development curves and aging curves and valuing kind of sample size go between basketball and football in that, you know, with the NFL, it's at three years after high school. So there's, you know, before you're draft eligible versus in the NBA, it's one year. So, you know, oftentimes you are getting a larger sort of sample size or seeing a guy a few years in, in the collegiate context for the NFL versus the NBA. Um, So I think, you know, with basketball, we probably put a little bit more value on pre-college tape and pre-college sample with high school, AAU, those sorts of things. Uh, is that something that you factor in at all? Like, are, are you kind of getting into the weeds with all of that? Or is it just not at worthwhile enough of an endeavor for, for you at, knowing that you'll get at least like two to three years of college data and sample? I don't think so, because a lot of I guess like star ratings production at that point yeah. is based on how physically developed you were. And yeah. so then that comes out in the draft with athletic testing and that sort right. of thing. It's like, Oh, then like, then take, take the guys who are good athletes later on. Uh, but like, just cause the guy was a five star, um, and if he didn't play well in college at all and then test like a bad athlete, it's like, well, what are we doing here? Like right. just cause he was a five star doesn't mean that he's got this, you know, untapped sort of potential. Yeah. It just mean that yeah. he grew before everyone else probably then at that point. Right. Right. Now I, I think that makes sense. Um, and then you were just, you were just touching on athletic testing. So I, I think maybe in football, some of the physical traits are maybe rightfully weighed a little bit more than in basketball, just due to the physical nature of the game. But, you know, to what extent when you're kind of building out your draft board or valuing players beyond the positional value stuff, like say you're doing your, you know, defensive end or edge rankings or your safety rankings or positional rankings. How do you sort of weigh your PFF grades, their on-field performance over time versus the, the measurables at the combine? And, and I guess, you know, I'm sure it varies position to position, but how do you kind of like add that all into the equation? That's what we're kind of still working on. And it obviously varies, like you said, position by position. Quarterback is not going to be like to a degree. It's, far more of a performance based. If you don't, if you suck at quarterback, if you're not playing well, but have just cannon for an arm, basically like Felipe Franks this year, you got a cannon for right. an arm and can run for days. It's like, that really is not going to get you in the door if you didn't play good football. Um, right. Whereas other positions say like defensive end where what you're being asked to do on a given play is a simple thing, you know, right. being asked to beat a block. And so if you have 36 inch arms and can run a four or five, you're only having to do a real simple thing then to actually produce at the NFL level. And right. And you, you trust that NFL value. coaching can kind of like yeah. upskill your technique if you have the baseline physical traits. Exactly. And, and it's not even like you just don't even need that much technique at that point when you're, yeah. when you are the freak and like, right. You just got a, so kind of like boxing where it's like, if you got the length advantage and you got the explosive advantage, the other guy's not going to be able to touch you. You're always going to hit him first. So, uh, so that's obviously position by position, but if we're like stacking towards the top of our board, productions like you, you got to meet the threshold. You got to, you got to be, it's got to be showing up on the football field for us to even feel close to comfortable drafting that guy in the first round. Um, even with, even if you are, you know, world, world-class athlete. Yeah. I think in basketball, it definitely matters a lot. Like, like wingspan, standing reach, especially for like, big guys, you know, those things matter a good bit. And oftentimes 
they serve as sort of like a almost like a tiebreaker if you have two kind of similar prospects if one kind of has better measurables in that regard maybe that that can help you know seal the deal and give them the edge over a comparable prospect i would say another thing that i think is difficult to get a grasp of without kind of years of experience is kind of accounting for team scheme and context and kind of strength of opponent and like you know what specific coaches you know, like to do or how they utilize their players at the collegiate level versus what they'll be asked to do at the next level. Yes, for example, like Kentucky is a school in basketball that, you know, oftentimes you see guys with lower levels of production in college because they come into Coach Calipari's system and maybe he's trying to get them to improve on something specific about their game or fit into a specific role at Kentucky. But when they get to the NBA level, they kind of flourish because they get a little bit longer of a leash and can do a little bit more than what they were asked to at the previous level. Are there programs in college that you see similar trends with and how do you kind of account for the, like the context of team scheme uh, when you're projecting to the next level, especially with like a wide variety of different offenses that are run in college football? Yeah, that one's, I don't, I don't think there's any sort of corollary in terms of like players being underutilized, like any real yeah. scheme that underutilizes. I think the, maybe the biggest one would be just like a run heavy offense with a good wide receiver. Yeah, yeah. That, that oftentimes where just guy is not featured or vice versa, a good running back in a pass heavy offense where you're just not getting featured to your strengths. That will happen at times. I don't think there's one school or, or specific like scheme that is the case with, but it's always sort of, you're looking at that's why that's why I think the traditional scouting is just physical physical tools based. What can you do athletically? What yeah. uh, how how is your build? Because that doesn't change. Or like that that can change a little bit, but like that is who you are. That then you can tell you know what role based off of you know all those things that they have. What role then would be best for someone? But I, I think you have to blend the two in terms of like how well they actually did at. XYZ that they were asked to do and then what physical tools they have to project to said role in the NFL. And that's kind of like, that is like the, the definition of scouting and like what we're trying to do here. So um, I I do think though, there is not as much of that as like a lot of times if you see a guy playing in college, he is being asked to do, or will be doing a very similar thing in the NFL. Yeah. It's a it's rarities that you're really seeing guys having to either change positions, change roles, that sort of thing. But it's it, it is definitely a big factor for a lot of you know finding basically uh, hidden gems and that sort of thing. Right. Who who sticks out to you this year as sort of like the toughest eval from like a square peg round hole perspective from you know, that maybe their college role not aligning super directly with what they project as or what teams see them as at the next level? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, Try to think here. I, I think the interesting one is going to be the slot receivers in this draft class. Yeah. Um, so you got Elijah Moore from Ole Miss. You got mm-hmm. Kadarius Tony from Florida. They didn't, they didn't play the outside at all. Right. Now, if you're drafting that guy in the first round – I can't, I'm trying to think if I've ever seen just like a pure slot receiver draft in the first round. If you're drafting a guy in the first round, he's going to play outside for you. You're going to ask him to do that. And so it's a much different role. You're running a completely different route tree. You're having to do a completely different thing in terms of getting off press coverage, uh, 
getting vertical uh, down the football field more consistently. And now we haven't seen him do that. Can they? Possibly. I think Elijah Moore can. I, I think we yeah. saw enough from him to say he can. Kadiris Tony, I have more questions about, but it's like that's kind of those are the guys that I'm I'm curious to see where they end up going because, like I said, people just don't draft pure slot slot wide receivers in the first round. Yeah, I mean, I, I think sometimes m- maybe in basketball you might have an example of. You know, maybe that's like a scalability question where you have a guy who's on like a smaller, mm-hmm. like a smaller uh, college program that has like a high usage role with the ball in their hands all the time that maybe when they're going projecting to the next level, like they might not have that on ball equity to perform at that level at the NBA. But do they have the ancillary skills to be like a, a role player and kind of melt into other lineups and add defensive value and things like that? So, you know, sometimes it's hard to predict those things, but I, I mean, I guess as you know, how long have you been doing this now for Mike, like seven years? Yeah. We've been years? doing draft for seven years now. So, yeah. So, so, so what's your, what, what do you think you've improved the most on during that time frame from when you were first evaluating to, to now, like where have you made the biggest leap as a talent evaluator? I do think biggest thing is really opening your mind to the possibilities of what someone can be. I think early on, I could describe to you what this guy is. You know, you could do a really good job. That's that's the easy part is saying, here's who he is right now. Now, you have to then think about what that, what he brings to the table. One, how that fits in the NFL. And two, what that could be that what he's, what he's bringing to the table, what it could be when he's, you know, developed, like what, what, where's the development to be had here. And that's probably the biggest thing is that early on, I was like, this is what he is. He's going to be this XXX seeing them as static quantities where they're not. It's very much like almost an investment. Like where can right. they grow? Where can this investment grow? Or is, is this investment tapped out? Is this guy going yeah. to be that? And I think that's the biggest thing that I've grown in uh, my time evaluating. Right. So when you're kind of viewing things through that lens and projecting forward for you, how are you valuing sort of, like median outcome versus ceiling outcome and sort of the likelihood along that sort of curve or spectrum. Um, like how, how do you value that when you're shaping your board or kind of projecting a guy's career forward? Yeah. Like I said, we still value the guys who have produced already. Like if you, if yeah. you really have, and if you're, if you're good on a football field right now, because of the admitted fact that so many of these guys don't work out, half the first rounders are not going to be quality NFL players. Right. So I want a guy I know is if I'm going early, I know already is good at something like that's, I'm going to draft a guy who's already kind of, who's already dominating on a college football field. So that's, that's one a, but then two is obviously if a guy's dominating college football field and maybe they're, you know, below the sort of athleticism thresholds for a certain position, or uh, maybe they have really short arms in their defensive end, and it's just how how are they going to get after the quarterback at the next level? And maybe or, that's or like that a Luca, like a Luca Garza type in basketball, right? Like this guy that's absolutely obliterating college basketball, <clears throat> but the way that the game is, and you know how he would likely test athletically as a big man, like that's just not what yeah. teams are necessarily looking for. Like how does he stay on the court in high leverage situations? Right. And that, and that's like, I think this year, Mac Jones, the Alabama quarterback is that guy. It's like, he just, he's not athletic. He doesn't have a big arm, 
but his on field like was about as good as it gets. So it's where are you balancing that um, in the grand scheme of things? And so that's kind of, again, like that's really what we're trying to figure out here is the problem. Yeah. Mac Jones. He, I, I think of him as the, the fat upside guy. And uh, in this draft class, there's, there's always a few fat upside guys in <laughs> basketball that you're like, you know, if this guy, can just get into an NBA strength and conditioning program. Like he's got all this skill and feel and IQ yeah. and knows how to play, but you know, maybe there's some untapped potential there. Do you think like, you know, if Matt Mac Jones can kind of, you know, get on with a nutritionist and get in better shape, <laughs> that maybe there's some untapped potential there as well. Yeah. Like have a Le'Veon Bell rookie year where he what, right. dropped like 30 pounds Le'Veon. Yeah. I mean, you probably should. <laughs> I'm like, if, if you're not doing it at Alabama though, where, I yeah, don't think fair. they, that's they might have a better strength and conditioning program than, you know, the NFL place he's going to go. Uh, True. I'm not sure you're ever going to, that switch is ever going to flip, but yeah, he, de- he definitely, I uh, could, could stand to lose a few. We'll say. <laughs> so uh, another thing I wanted to touch on a little bit, and we've, we've alluded to some of it, but like the role of analytics and what you guys are doing at PFF as far as, you know, how built out is your sort of historical database and like your data science team? And do you sort of work hand in hand with some of these guys that are more, more technical to, you know, factor in some of these deep analytical evaluations into your scouting process? And then how, how do you balance that versus uh, film? And like, have you picked up any sort of technical like data analysis or modeling skills along the way? I have not. No, I don't know shit about any of that. Um, <laughs> I handle, I, I leave that to them. I more like pose them questions or like, yeah. we'll ask them things that are, you know, or, or more like, to, and also like tell them things about like the game. Like here, here's what I believe about X, Y, Z position. Uh, here's like something like that I've seen that I think matters more. Like does the data more. back this up? Or, exactly. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, we have a team of like six guys working on, now they mostly do a lot of it's focused towards just NFL in general, um, evaluation at that end. Um, but there is a good deal of college and we collect obviously more data in college than anyone else does Yeah, and sell that back to NFL teams. And a lot of, a lot of those guys work with NFL teams to kind of try to like solve problems for them specifically and whatnot, right. what they do, but we're still trying to do basically, you know, and we talked about find what matters at certain positions with the athlete, whether it's athletic testing, whether it's what part of the grades are most translate, translate the best, um, that sort of thing. Um, level of competition, all these sort of things, those guys are kind of grinding to do college to pro projections. And, and like you said, giving projections in terms of like range of outcomes and, yeah. and where guys could end up on either end instead of just saying, here's what they're going to be more saying, here's the range of what they are likely to be based off of historical, how they've done over the past seven years of grading these guys in college football. Yeah. I think that kind of context is way more helpful than just like a singular point of prediction. Like Mm -hmm. here's the range of outcomes. Here's a percentage, you know, best guess as to them falling into these tiers. And I think we see a lot of that on the basketball side as well. Like, and, and so much of it does depend on the situation that a given player falls into, right? Like is I, I've seen a lot of people in the basketball space basically immediately after a given draft class kind of go back and like, 
you know, re-rank or re-project the class shortly after the draft based on what teams players fall to. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that something that you guys sort of take a look at uh, like shortly thereafter, like adjust your project projections based on fit and kind of organizational culture and all that sort of stuff? I think we do it subconsciously and you talk, we talk about it, but actually that's a nice, that's, a, that's an interesting exercise. I should probably go back and actually kind of put that, put pen to paper on something like that. Cause I do think that's, uh, at least interesting because you know, um, was it last year? Like when Jalen Rager, we had Rag- Jalen Rager, the wide receiver, yeah, uh, ahead of Just Jefferson. But then Jalen Rager goes to a spot where he's you know got Carson Wentz thrown to him, and right. Just Jefferson goes to the Vikings, Kirk Cousin, where he's obviously going to slot in right away as their number two receiver. And we're like, that's probably a better spot for Just Jefferson. And, you know, like, right. that's probably going to be better for him than it is for Rager. And so right. I, I do think that there is a lot of that, especially you know with positions that aren't. Uh, like O line D line is kind of like they're they're on their own. They they control right. their ones, own destiny. Ones that are more dependent, dependent like will yeah. move a lot more. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I think that makes sense. Uh, and then a- another thing, I think I heard you guys recently on a on a podcast going through the biggest differentiations between your board versus the like consensus athletic board, right? And mm-hmm. kind of investigating who are you highest on and why versus who are you lower than consensus on and why um, often it was a p- positional value argument, but uh, like, did you find that exercise useful just from a, like, obviously you believe in your own evaluation and you, you know, there are reasons for that, but is it helpful for you to kind of use that as a, maybe a flag to further investigate something that maybe you hadn't thought about before, or even just kind of get a sense of when you're forming your mock drafts, like the macro valuation of some of these guys as you're putting all that together. No, I think that was really valuable. Uh, not only just like, I do believe in the wisdom of the crowds being, yeah. you know, at least somewhat valuable, but also for like a self scout, like to say, yeah. why look at these guys that were higher on there. I'm actually literally writing about this. Uh, it was right before I hopped on here and having to justify it basically to myself and say yeah. why and what's like the reason and is that a good enough reason or is that uh, worthwhile and some of these guys i'm looking back i'm like hey, sh- shit you know like maybe i maybe i like was a little bit high uh, and yeah. maybe that maybe i should have um just been a tad lower on them compared to where i was maybe like i valued one thing a little too much and so i do think challenging your own sort of echo chamber is a very good thing in this in this business that ha- just being confident in what you think and disregarding what the general public like what what people believe is probably going to lead to, to bad results more often than not if you're solely uh tied into that right like there's a lot of smart people out there that you know if you just kind of crowdsource that yeah. and pull it all together like that's something that i do at rookie scale is aggregate a lot of different boards and mocks to get a consensus top 100 and no it doesn't align perfectly with what my personal board might look like but it it really does lead me to dig further in pull up some old tape like look look kind of further into guys that there's a sh- striking difference there and th- i think that over time, that's a valuable exercise. Uh, you know, you don't want to, you know, fall prey to kind of anchoring bias or like getting yourself like pulled way too far away from something you feel strongly about, but there's still often something to be learned from that, I think. No, I agree. And 
And yeah, there is like when you have a consensus board or those sort of things, there is anchoring bias just like in inbuilt into all that. Like people's like the big boards, movers and shakers, like yeah, people's will, boards but, are impacted yeah. by other people's boards are impacted yeah. by what other people think. And also like these boards are taken into account, especially in football, not necessarily in basketball, but like I don't know how many how many people have watched like 2019 UCF all 22. It's like <laughs> a lot of these boards are going to have a UCF cornerback who hasn't played since 2019 low. Cause I don't like they're probably not watching them. Right. But I just don't have right. the tape to get on them. Not a lot of people right. do. That's a different, that's a different animal in football compared to basketball where uh, right. you know, a lot of that you're seeing TV copy is not difficult to necessarily evaluate those guys. Right. Right. So, so what is your sort of, I guess, workflow and process when you're digging through film, right? So you, you referenced all 22, like there's similar tools to that out there in basketball where you can go through an individual player kind of possession by possession based on different event types and stuff. Right. So when you're watching film on a given player, like what, what is your process? Like, are you sitting there like taking notes the whole time? Like, are you typing into a Google doc? Like, are you, do you have all your, uh, PFF, uh, proprietary stats already, uh, you know, side by side with the film as you're doing it? Like what, what is your process as you're going through this? Yeah. So I'll just have a, so like I said, a Google doc with notes up on a guy, write whatever, something really comes to mind that I'm maybe either seeing repeatedly or something like if it's like arm strength, you see it once you're like, okay, shit, this guy's got a cannon sort of thing. Um, yeah. but what uh, I'll watch, it depends on the position, but a lot of times, uh, I'll start off cornerbacks. Uh, the probably one of the biggest value ads we have here at PFF is this tool called ultimate that lets you just drill in and, watch like if i just want to see any every time the cornerback was targeted you just go in and do that or yeah. every time the cornerbacks in man coverage you just go in and do that and so a lot yeah. of times i'll just with positions like that i'll go into their unique like every time they're targeted watch their targets and then be like okay i want to see a game against a good wide receiver what are they doing you know, how how what what techniques are they playing most often that sort of thing to really get a handle on who they are but i think you want to start off with the them being involved in the plays to just you obviously see more than and then you want to get like a holistic role of kind of what they're being asked to do and so i think that's kind of how i go on a player and if and if they suck well maybe i get one game through and i'm like yeah okay let me get out of this if they're if they're impressed over that maybe i'll watch like a whole season's worth of a guy if he's really looking that good uh and like this guy i want to see more of so uh that's kind of how i go about doing this yeah. So that's, that's interesting. Cause you know, the, the particular place where they're targeted, like obviously you get more insight into like their closing speed or, you know, their instincts and reactiveness yeah. and things like that. And, but you know, I, so do you all, you also then go back and maybe watch like every sort of uh, every snap defensively, maybe that's a pass play for a corner and see like, maybe you know if they're locking guys down and not being targeted like what their sort of hip fluidity is and if they're able to like stick with guys or that they're doing what they're asked to do on a given play even when they're not being targeted as well yeah so that's what i'm saying like you you watch the targets and then you watch the games themselves to to get more of a feel of what they're being asked to do and just who they are as a player was on the targets you can see like ball skills things that you know how they track and that sort of thing. But yeah, it's, it's definitely important to get a, to, to then watch like full games to see basically their role and, and then how they're going about their biz play to play. 
Yeah, I think in basketball, sometimes, uh, you know, people can be using these kind of software, like clipping softwares where they go through and watch like every every pick and roll possession or every catch and shoot possession for a given player uh, and try to build their evaluation just based on like these uh, mm-hmm. results based, like uh, just where that player was kind of the primary person in an action. But like without going back and watching all of the film, you can lose some of the more nuanced stuff with like off ball defense and, uh, you know, the team team value add stuff, like doing the little things versus just like when the ball's in their hand or when they're their primary defender or something. So like sometimes that information gap or lack of like really digging into the film can, I think, lead people astray in some of their evaluations, which, you know, to an extent I get it's tough because there's so many prospects out there. There's so, you know, it's hard because there's time constraints, but mm-hmm. you know, that I think that's a key piece of the puzzle, both in football and basketball for sure. Last thing I wanted to touch on uh, was the positional value stuff we were talking about earlier, right? It's come mm-hmm. up a few times, and I think there's a pretty strong parallel here between basketball and football. And, you know, basketball, the kind of primary example is like a devaluation of big men or centers uh, in the modern game, right? So, you know, maybe it doesn't make as much sense to draft a big man really high in the lottery given the opportunity costs of, you know, you can pick up a pretty solid center off the scrap heap and free agency on a team friendly deal that can give you some value. And it, it makes more sense to take swings at, you know, big wings that can guard multiple positions and be a primary facilitator offensively with size. Right. So, you know, last year, James Wiseman was the guy who was a more of a traditional big that got picked toward the top of the draft and Lamella Ball was picked shortly thereafter as like a, you know, skilled six seven plus wing primary initiator type guy, right? So in football, so the the positions obviously quarterbacks like the most obvious one, right? But like wide receiver, O tackle, edge, D tackle, corner, right? Like those are kind yeah. of the positions that, like based, I think you guys have done some analyses where you're looking at like the average salary for some of the top guys at each of these positions. Right. So you want to maybe just speak to that in more depth and kind of uh, why that matters in the draft versus, you know, free agent opportunities based on position. Yeah. I think it's very, it has to factor into your draft um, sort of conversation because the biggest things that play here, one, every pick, no matter what position you pick gets the same salary. So the the 10th overall pick, if you draft a quarterback or if you draft a kicker, we'll get that exact same salary over the next four years. So uh, that then like the, like I said, the average quarterback is making about 10 times the average kicker. So that that has to factor into your decision of where to draft guys. And then the fact that, and this is different for the NFL a little bit from the NBA in terms of, I believe I'm not so I'm not wholly, uh, versed on the NBA salary cap, but it is a capped league in the NFL. Yeah. So you have to basically to to win Super Bowls, you have to be getting more value out of your two hundred million dollars than someone else is getting out of their two hundred right. million dollars. Basically, you have to be yep. using your money more efficiently. And so, how do you use your money more efficiently? Well, if you have guys that are playing positions that in free agency would cost twenty million dollars to go sign defensive end, uh, thirty million dollars quarterback. 
if you have them playing for that cost controlled $4 million, whatever that would take at a top 10 pick, you're saving yourself a lot of money at the, at yep. the, against salary cap that you could be spending elsewhere. Right. Uh, and then you can go out and sign a safety if you want, or, a, you know, a linebacker who may not be as expensive and you can get good play at that linebacker position that, you know, is good play. Cause that guy's played well for five years now. Um, yep. So I think that's something that has to go in. Now we have our beliefs about which positions are actually most valuable on, on the football field and our wins above replacement metrics tries yeah. to quantify that. And that's obviously pairs up, but I think you'd be a fool not to, uh, to try to pair those up in terms of now it obviously is scheme dependent. What are you asking your guys to do? And that's yeah. going to play an impact on it. But it's like, again, it is a cap league. You have to be finding value where others aren't. And so just drafting a good player, if he plays a position that is not as valuable, is not is just doing yourself a disservice. Uh, when those are the lottery tickets, those are what win you, you know, championships. The Bucks win a championship because they are paying no one in their secondary second con, second contracts. They don't have to pay. Right. Single, they're all rookie deals. Their entire secondary, and obviously Tom Brady helps, but like entire rookie deals and their secondary rookie right tackle who's playing like an All Pro. That's why you win Super Bowl is because you have those sort of inefficiencies and a linebacker who's a very good coverage linebacker playing at a high level as well in a rookie deal. It's like, that's how you, that's how you end up winning. You can't just go out and sign free agents and expect to win a Super Bowl. Yeah. I think there's that, that goes similarly for basketball as well. It is a capped league. Like you're saying, there's rookie scale contracts that are set in stone based on the CBA for the first round. And like, if you can get a guy on a rookie scale deal, uh, you know, that plays one of these positions that, you know, is going to get paid a ton, like these big wing stoppers or, you know, guys like that. If you can get a guy like that on a rookie deal and spend money, you know, elsewhere rounding out the roster, that gives you all that much more of a chance going forward. And there's even the trade value aspect of it as well, right? Like if you're drafting these guys that in these valuable positions, they're more likely to hold up as trade assets down the line too. Yeah. So Carson Wentz. <laughs> yeah. You get a first rounder exactly. back. Like the guy can suck balls and you can get a first rounder back just because he plays a position that everyone wants. Right. Versus like Saquon Barkley or Zeke Elliott or some of these yeah. guys, right? He's not fetching a first right now. Yeah. yeah. Which is, you know, it's, it's like such a tough thing for people to probably to get past, like, just thinking about it like yeah saquon barkley is good but that's just like not not how this works right yeah Yeah. so how much did it hurt your soul when the packers drafted aj Dillon? like like i I need to know i need to see into the brain of mike renner when that happened there was a video of it and i i mean you saw me like dying it's it's still on twitter somewhere i i'm gonna have to go dig that up yeah i'll send it to you it was literally just like I, I think my face went blank. I thought I was being pranked. You know, <laughs> I just couldn't believe it. Like you draft a backup running back when you have a team that went to NFC championship game, but it just like excuse all concepts of value. It's unreal, man. Unreal. But you know, I think, I mean, I think more teams will catch on to this over time. Like I, the, the NFL, I wouldn't necessarily view as like the most progressive league like it's kind of a little bit a little behind some other other leagues as far as like you know adapting to analytics and all all these kind of uh you know these thought processes and nuanced you know ways of running organizations so you know i think eventually it'll catch up a little bit but 
you know, I think we touched on basically everything that I was hoping to hit on here. Uh, but before we go, I know it's draft week for you right now, one of the biggest weeks of the year for you. So what, what does this week look like for you? Like, what are you doing between now and the draft? What is your sort of last minute prep? Like what, what value are you getting out of this week? Are you still evaluating in any way, shape or form or getting Intel for mocks? Or are you mostly just like doing a bunch of media stuff and, and prepping for actual draft day? Doing a shit ton of media stuff. Yeah. I do like five radio hits a day, a couple podcasts, uh, prep for our podcast as well. And then really right now, I'm kind of just, I'm making notes and what, uh, basically trying to prepare. So we're doing a show for the first round. We're doing a show for every single round here at PFF. That's going to be on our website and like on Yahoo. And so it's going to be out there. And so I basically try not to sound like an idiot when I get, when I have to talk about a player or a team. And so doing all that background, I've done all the, I've watched all these guys. I mean, our guide came out three weeks ago. I've done yeah. all the team research in terms of like exact needs on this roster. I, I think I, I hopefully know every single starting player in the NFL if I had to tell them off right now. So right. like that's what I've prepped. And now I'm just like going to find some nuggets, stats, something, something interesting to say about yeah. every single one once they get drafted come, you know, next Thursday. It's going to be fun. Nice. No, that's awesome, man. I'm excited to see where our uh, ND boys end up. Uh, Koromoa, Eichenberg, and I mean, Tommy Tremble is probably my personal favorite. I, I, I like Tremble quite a bit. I, you know, as a Steelers fan, as a Steelers fan, I've been spoiled with a couple uh, ND guys and Stefan Tuitt and Chase Claypool ending up on my, on my uh, NFL team. So, you know, wouldn't hate Tommy Tremble ending up there as well. I mean, I'd love to see that. He's, I just feel like he's one of these super versatile tight ends that can do a little bit of everything. I always enjoyed him at Notre Dame. So excited to see what happens for him in the pros. It's tight end three on the PFF draft board. It's top hundred player. So I think he goes. That's through. right. Yeah. Hey, that's what's up. Good for him. Excited to see how that plays out for those guys. And then uh, you want to just quickly plug uh, where people can follow you and PFF on social media and exactly where they should go for all your coverage this week and on draft day. Yeah, you can find me at PFF underscore Mike on Twitter. Um, where you can find a draft guide, which is 300 player profiles and like team pages, all the stats and grades and whatever you could possibly want on these guys at PFF.com. Use the promo code draft 30. It's 30% off. So any subscription gets the draft guide. Um, and then we'll be live, like I said, all three days of the draft and the recap show. If you're interested, a little second screen action along with, you know, the big dogs. So it'll be fun. Awesome. That's what's up. Everyone be sure to go check that out. PFF is uh, really doing some amazing stuff in the space. Mike, uh, really enjoyed having you on. And as always, go Irish. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Chad. Go Irish.